Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. George Daniel has an impressive resume. He started fly fishing when he was a young boy before trying out and qualifying for Fly Fishing Team USA. George is a two-time U.S. national fly fishing champion and was ranked as high as fifth in the world. He's also the author of multiple best-selling fly fishing books, as well as the director and lead instructor for the Pennsylvania State University Fly Fishing Program. In this episode of Anchored, we take an inside look at George's personal life and learn more about how he came to be the seasoned professional he is today. If you haven't already checked out the Anchored membership at anchoredoutdoors.com, it sure would mean a lot to me if you do so now. Anchored Outdoors combines education, community, and accessibility, all in a sequential system that's fun and easy to follow. We've got all sorts of new, exciting surprises around the corner, including a members-only podcast, so that you can listen to our masterclasses while you drive. Find out more at www.anchoredoutdoors.com. I'll see you there. I was born in North Pennsylvania, so I was on the Pennsylvania border with New York. We grew up in the sticks, like just in the middle of absolute nowhere. We were a one-car family, so my dad had a job up in New York State. I've uh, kind of lived in a very poverty sort of level for probably the first 10 years of our lives. So we had one car, and my mom would just basically let me go uh, during the daytime, and I had this like beautiful, wild brook trout stream, native brook trout stream flowing right through my house. And it was a kids only section. And so I had like this private fishery all to myself because I was the only kid in the village that fished. 
And it was just, it was great. My, my father introduced me to fly fishing, but he had very little patience. So once he showed me how to do, I kind of was off on my own most of the time, but really there was really nothing else I wanted to do in my life. Uh, when I, once I caught my first fish on a fly, like I was like, this is all I want to do. Like this is, this, this was it. Uh, I was a horrible student, terrible student, uh, maybe probably not so much of a good son, uh, but when it came to fishing, fishing was the one thing that was like my calm. Uh, and it was the only thing that I ever had. Like, it was like my North star, um, throughout my entire life. Wait a second. Okay. I've got a couple questions for you here and this is going to be personal. So, sure. and I, I think of you as being kind of private. You're sort of, I see you as the gentleman, you're this, this industry gentleman, and I am not quite as much of a lady, so I might overstep my boundaries here. But the poverty thing is very interesting to me. So is there a story there? I mean, you had, you had both your parents. It's a weird background. My my mom was like pure blood, like redneck, like part of my family, I would even consider like kind of like white trash-ish. My father grew up in like the, the outside part of Philadelphia, grew up in like a upper middle class, went to very high-end prep schools. And then he got into fishing early on in his life, read some magazines about central Pennsylvania and left that life to become a, a fishing bum. And basically, long story short, they met at a at a factory uh, where my mom kind of worked and when my dad ended up working just because he was just trying to find a job to supply his fishing habit. Uh, but you know, kind of make it very, very simple. Like we lived in poverty, like absolute poverty. I remember maybe probably the first five, six years of my life, like we actually like were on food stamps. I, I remember people like driving to our house and like giving us like dropping off food and stuff because my dad lost his job for like one or two years. So it, we were like in really, really dire situations uh, for a number of years. Uh, and then eventually that thing that kind of switched around, but yeah. So when it, when it comes to just being thankful for like having like a nice house and like having a good education, like, um, I'm very, very fortunate. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it was definitely a complete 180 from where I started or where people probably thought I would have gone based on where I started my life. How did it not make you resent fishing? That your dad was a fish bum and that your lives really were molded around his, his habit. At that point, it, it never really stuck. You kind of suck in, stuck in, uh, to be honest with you. But, you know, there was the one thing I was always thankful for was that he was actually he introduced it to me and that was it. Like and he kind of gave me this gift, even though he really didn't do anything other than just kind of a, a mere introduction. But because I had that introduction, like I'm very thankful for that experience. Uh, and just like I'm sure there's people that we have met that have brought bad things to us, but there's always kind of like a, a silver lining to the end of that. Uh, and to me, fly fishing was kind of that silver lining. Okay. So was he, he wasn't at your side every day doing the, you know, no. the, the, what, what you would assume him standing next to you no. saying, all right, son, now this is the cast. None of that. No, no. My dad, my dad, very talented angler, very skilled outdoorsman, but no, once he had, I don't think he really wanted to have kids to be honest with you early on in life. Uh, but we were, we were a product. It happened. And he just, you know, he was there once in a while, but for the most part, he just, he worked and he spent his other time doing other things. So, and that was just kind of the way it was. Uh, but to, the great thing was we had a mom that would uh, drive me around all over the place. Uh, I had a bicycle. I mean, I mean, to be honest, I really didn't need anything else. Um, uh, 
fly fishing was like my was like my comfort food, so to speak. Right. Okay. So tell me about the stream yeah. that you were fishing. Was it stocked with brookies? No, it was a, it's a native brook trout stream. So it was where we grew up, it was called Potter County. So it was, it's what they call God's country because only you and God know where you are. I mean, it is still literally the sticks and what's, it's about an hour and a half north of where I am now. But what is amazing about this part, it's one of the darkest places in the Eastern United States. We actually have um, star observatories up there uh, just because of how dark it is. So it's very little population. And what is so cool about the place is that even now when you go back, it hasn't changed. Like it's still like, it looks the same as it did like when I left like 25 years ago, which is unheard of. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah. So when I go up there, I, I kind of feel like I'm, you know, six years old, seven years old back in my old stomping grounds, but it was just this little stream that was maybe, I don't know, maybe two, three feet wide, oh. uh, maybe a meter wide. Uh, it was just tiny, uh, and it was a tributary to a larger stream, but it just had these just beautiful brook trout. And occasionally, late summer, when the water temperatures on the main stem got too warm, these larger brown trout would move up into the smaller stream. So it was, it was just, it was paradise. It was just awesome. Just a small little like technical brook trout fishery all to myself. How long were you allowed to fish it for? What age did they kick you off at? Uh, 14. Uh, but long story short, when I was about 13 and a half, that's when we kind of relocated. My dad ended up with another job and we moved down into central Pennsylvania, closer to Penn State University, where I, where I currently work. Oh, okay. So what was your life like throughout school then? Just walk me through your timeline a little bit. Oh, just terrible student. Absolutely horrible student. I, I was a jock, definitely a jock. Um, but school was, school was, school and me were always problems. I, I was, I wasn't a, a bad student in the sense where I was disruptive and I was actually very kind and kind of a, a good student. But when it came to studying, like I had zero drive to want to get better or learn any skill sets, which is funny because my father's side and my grandfather, they were engineers, very uh, creative, uh, very just kind of just mindset on like good education. But for me, for the longest time, it was just education was not that important until I moved down into the state college area. And once I became, once I moved down here, I, I read a book on uh, Joe Humphreys who uh, taught the angling program. But I read that book when I was like 13 or 14. And it's like, this is like the job. Like this is the one job I, I would want is to teach college. Uh, even though I was like a horrible student, but from that point on, that was kind of like, that was the the one goal I always wanted. And people based on my my scores in school at that point said so there's just no way in hell you're ever going to do that uh but eventually i started i started working uh, i started kind of like hanging around people that focused highly on education that thought highly of education and started using them using them kind of as mentors so to speak so i had some good influences along the way and slowly but surely i started applying myself uh and it was probably at ninth like the second year in college to be honest with you i almost flunked out my first two years in college but um i spent more time with joe joe took me under his wing mr humphreys and he just said listen you need to get your act in together you need and, and that's one thing i like about joe joe is he doesn't cut corners like if you're screwing up he's straight to the point um so long. So I ended up just like really applying myself, going, doing really well at the last couple of years of school, going to graduate school, um, and then kind of left that for a little bit. Got into the fly fishing industry, so so to speak, with the with the fly fishing team, managing a couple of fly shops, and then 
the Penn State job came available uh, about four years ago. So I'm 44 years old. It's taken me a, bit, a little bit longer to get to my like ideal uh, life or life job, but it, I'm here and it's been a great ride so far. Okay. But there's a lot to unpack here. How did you get into the fly fishing industry? <laughs> so with the fly fishing industry, it was just after graduate school, I was finishing up my, my master's. Uh, I had all my coursework done. And that's when the U.S. fly fishing team had this like first qualifier. So like in 2005, uh, it was in Bend, Oregon. Like it was the first time, even though the team had been around for like numbers of years, it was the first time they actually opened it up. So to be like a legitimate team rather than just saying you're my buddy or you have enough money to come over seas, let's let's compete. They opened it up, and I was finished. I was just starting my my master's thesis. And I left that and I told my advisor, don't worry, I'm just going out to Bend, Oregon. I'm just going to try this competition to see what happens. I made the team and uh, never finished my master's at that point. Um, and then just dove right into the, the team. Yeah, the competition side of things, it was just amazing. Just spending time with like great anglers and just seeing this whole world of fly fishing that I never thought about. Um, and just the environment, the, the learning environment, uh, how people were sharing information, how good these anglers were, kind of gave me something to aspire to. Um, and it wasn't like I never hung around good anglers here, but there was just something that was just like a magnet. It just said, you know, you can learn so much from these people. Because I think a lot of times people want to get comfortable. They want to surround themselves with people that they're better at so they make themselves feel better. But for me, when I when I see someone who is like amazing at something, is like, I need to spend time with this person. I, I need to learn from this person. Uh, I, I want everything that this person has. And and that's what spending time with the team members did. Uh, guys like Lance Egan, Devin Olson. Um, those are the guys I, I spent a lot of time with and I learned so much from. Uh, and then after that, I got into guiding, started guiding um, locally, uh, started doing lessons, education, started doing speaking engagements. Um, and for the longest time, I was very quiet, very shy, very awkward. I remember trying to do my first couple of presentations, speaking engagements. I remember in college, like the first two weeks before my first talk in class, it was a public speaking course. Like I couldn't sleep for two weeks because I was just so anxious. I was just so nervous. And But I knew education and fly fishing was something I just wanted to do. It was just something I, I just loved to do. And so I just started volunteering myself. Like even if it was three, four hours away, like if a group was willing to listen to me, I would drive like three, four hours and not charge anything uh, in my 20s just to get the experience and, and to do this. Uh, I thought I hit the big time the one time. Uh, I'm in Pennsylvania. There was a fly shop in Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky. It was 12 hours away. I was working at the local fly shop. And I, I worked on a Friday to like four o'clock. I drove 12 hours straight in that car, in my car, got there like 4.30 in the morning, slept in my car for a couple hours, woke up, went for my morning run, and then did my two hour, three hour presentation. I got $450, drove home 12 hours and worked the next morning. And I thought like I hit the big time. Like, it's like I could do this like a couple times a month and like get a couple grand, like get a couple grand. It's like, this is awesome. <laughs> uh, but uh <laughs> But no, the, the whole industry is just uh, spending time with Joe uh, to make things really simple. When I watch Joe speak, when he do his when he would do his programs and his presentations, like I just thought that was the uh, that was the best. Like not just showing people how good you are, but actually helping others become better anglers and better stewards of the resource. And there was always a draw for me to kind of help to 
to want to help others become better, not just saying, here I am, I'm the greatest, but learning ways to communicate necessary skills to make people enjoy themselves on the water that much more. And that, for me, that has always been my driving force um, since I entered the industry. So when you started with the team, were you already a pretty technical angler or did you become a technical angler after you joined the team? I fished in central Pennsylvania. Central Pennsylvania is kind of a, it's a tough, it's a tough area to fish. Um, and I spent a good bit of time with Joe Humphreys. Um, so Joe really helped mold a technical side of things early on in my life. And even when I was like 18, 17, 18, like I would just do odd end jobs. Uh, and I, and I hired guides on my own, uh, to, if I wanted to learn about fly cast and there was a guy named Dan Shields. I mean, I, I did IN jobs just to hire this guy a couple times to learn the nuances of casting um, and a guy named Dave Roth or I can so many others, but there was always something about the technical side of things about not just shown, but actually breaking things down into the smallest parts and seeing what the cause and effect is. And that's the thing that really uh, I love about fly fishing because it, it's, it can be simple, but it, it can also be technical, but I, I love and I guess this is kind of the engineering side. Uh, my grandfather and father were the engineers. It kind of skipped my generation, but still the the ideas of looking at something and breaking it down piece by piece and trying to see what causes the end result, that is something that I absolutely love to do. Uh, so I always had that kind of technical side uh, to uh, my fly fishing. Do you remember the first thing that gave you an or, or your first aha moment when you started fishing with the team? Just they were doing a demonstration. We were in Bend, Oregon. There was a guy named Sam, but it was with the, the European nymphing approach. Um, and even though we did had, had done high stick nymphing and so forth, but Sam just did a quick introduction. Sam was a member of the team at that point. Uh, and Jack Dennis, who was a coach, had Sam just kind of doing a little demonstration in front of the team. But just the way that Sam picked the way that picked apart the water, and there was just a, a really kind of fast, turbulent section of water. Where from central Pennsylvania, where we kind of have slower meandering spring creeks with a little bit of gradient, there was like just like this kind of weight, kind of like whitewater section on the Deschutes River. And I, we watched Sam go in there and just pick up two or three fish. And I was just like, okay, that's like, that's okay. I, I would never have, I would never have guessed that fish were in there. And I would never even guessed you could do that with a fly rod. So when I saw that, and that was like just two minutes into it, I was like, okay. I'm sold. Like, I need to know more about this. So what did he do that was different, just out of curiosity? And I, I know we, we're not going to get too technical here, but what was different to what you had been doing? It was the water he would approach, like the, the fast, like he would actually like target the like fastest sections, of like right, like literally like white caps, like white water, places where I would never even have guessed uh, based on my limited geographic experience living in central Pennsylvania. So the water that he approached uh, and just the, the rigs that he used, but basically just the water approach and how he caught fish in that water, I would have never even tried that. So that was kind of my aha moment, uh, joint, my first aha moment with the team. Right. Okay. So how many years did this go on for? I think I have, I did do a little Google stocking before we hopped on. I think, did I read five times? Yeah, I, I competed for like five years. To be honest with you, like the first two or three years, like were my really good years. I did really well. And then um, soon after the team, uh, I did well with the team. I started having some opportunities to do more speaking, started having a family, uh, started coaching the youth team. So like 
year three into my adult team, I was coaching the youth team as well as competing. Um, I was working the fly shop as a manager, was starting to do a lot more speaking engagements, had my first book deal. So started to do a lot of things. And then my competition started like kind of sliding down my, my, I guess my, my end results were, but I was still good enough to compete on the U S side. I was still one of the stronger anglers, but when it came to the world scene, I wasn't that strong. I should have probably stepped out two or three years earlier. I should have like did my first two or two years. And then I just kind of hung on to a little bit too long. Uh, But I'm very thankful for the experience. So at that time, I mean, getting signed for your first book, you obviously had a reputation and were a personality in fishing. What, What were you best known for? I have a second part to that question, but I'll wait until you let me know that. I don't know what people think of me as. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as an educator. Uh, that that's kind of what I like to do. Um, I'm not a I'm not like an influencer or like personality because I, I Joe Humphreys and some like Lefty those guys had personalities like they were educators and they had strong personalities. I I don't have that strong personality. I'm just kind of a kind of quiet guy that just loves to teach, uh, and that's the only thing I love to do. Uh, so. Maybe think people think of me as as a as a fly fishing teacher or coach. I, I don't know. More specifically, <laughs> what was the book about? It was on nymphing. The book okay. uh, was on nymph fishing. Yep. So my question, my second part to that question is, how did Devin and a lot of those guys who were, I'm going to go on, on a limb and say some of them were there before you, how did they feel about you signing books and maybe them not getting the opportunities that you were? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure... Uh, yeah, I mean, egos, people, people are people. I know how I would have felt if we were competing at the same time and then maybe some of these guys had some books. So I don't know. It, it never was brought up. Um, and to be honest with you, they were like really good stand-up guys. I never felt like any sort of animosity or anything like that with them uh, after the book was published when we were still competing and working together. Uh, it was just 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 kind of like a good brotherly you know, love between each other. So um, you know, I, I felt like th- there was no hard feelings on their part. And surely when those guys came out with their DVDs and all the stuff that they're doing, it's, it's awesome. I, I'm, ve- I'm very proud of them and I'm very thankful that they have an opportunity to do that because, um, that's the beautiful thing about today's fly fishing industry where years in the past where there was only so many voices. Now anyone can have a voice, which is good and bad, but People like Devin and Lance definitely deserve a, a huge part of that voice in our industry today. Yeah, great. Oh, I'd love to hear this. Okay, so that would have just skyrocketed you to the next step in your career. So the book gets published. Um, was it well-received? It was. It was definitely one of Stackpole's, uh, I guess, best-selling technical fly fishing books of all time. So it definitely did well, and it definitely uh, brought me to a, a larger crowd where people, you know, I guess a few more people knew who I was after the book was published and well-received. Mm-hmm. Now, what year was that? Do you remember when it was published? I think that was like 2010. Okay. Yeah. So I met you. Do you remember meeting me in at the Michigan Fly Show? I do. It would have I do. been, yeah. it would have been about 12 years ago. Does that sound right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I'm going there here in about two weeks oh, uh, as well. So it's been like it's been like 12 years since I've been there. So I'm actually coming back. But yeah, I do remember seeing you at the show. So it it was uh, that book was just I think the book was just coming out or just came out. I think it had just come out period. because I remember you had a serious lineup of people who wanted to see you. 
And you were actually one of my first introductions as well, by the way, just fun fact, to technical fly fishing. And I remember being so disappointed because you know that show is so busy and they basically give you people who drag you from point A to point B so that you don't get interrupted. Sure. (laughs) And I remember wanting to watch you so bad and I and I wasn't allowed to stay. I was being dragged somewhere else. But I remember thinking to myself as I walked away, what is technical fly fish? What does he do? I need to know all these nuances. I need to know all the the little (laughs) subtleties in in how to make my fly work for me. Um Without getting too crazy going through, down the book, because again, we are here to talk about your life and I know people pick your brain to death about techniques, but can you tell me just a couple top takeaways from that particular book for people who have never read it, who might be curious how it could help them? Yeah. I mean, nymph fishing is, as Joe Humphreys would always say, the difference between a good day of nymph fishing and an okay day is usually one split shot. Or in other words, just a depth change. So a lot of it comes down to just understanding the stages that fish feed and simply putting the fly at that level. Fish in like the streams where I fish back home, they are bug rich. Like there are just a myriad of insects, especially during hatches where insects, there is a constant flood of food that's drifting. Trout in those situations, they don't need to move very far. I mean, there is no scarcity in their life. They can pretty much just open up their mouth and have just food constantly coming in towards them. So in those types of streams, wherever the food is drifting, those fish position and they stay pretty much locked into those positions. So the big thing is just understanding kind of the bug activity, the fish activity, and what you need to do with your ri- with your drift and your rig to present the fly at that exact height in the water column. So it's just about one of the big things is just drift height in the water column. That's one of the biggest things. And there are things that you can do if you're hanging up too often, if you're not hanging up enough, just clues and guesses I put in the book to kind of give people just kind of an idea about when they need to make a change. Because uh, that's the one thing that most people don't do when they're fishing is they make a cast, they drift and thinking, no, there's no fish there. My mentality and the way it was taught to me is if there's a good spot, I make a good drift. There's a fish there. I'm just, I'm doing, I'm failing to do something as an angler or as a technical fly fisher to achieve the right drift. So I need to make a change. And these are some of the things to think about. So that's what the book is about. It's just, it's a really deep dive, like pulling back a lot of layers of the onion uh, about the way I think. Because I think a good book and like there are really good books. It doesn't matter if it's fly fishing, if it's business. The favorite, the best books, because I love reading uh, a lot of books, but the best books are the books where you can get like deep inside the author's mind. Not just one, not just having them tell you what, what they do, but telling them how you think and getting the idea about how they go through their process of elimination. And I think that's the most important thing. And that's what I try to do with all my writing just kind of let the people think about, know about what I'm going through in my head as I'm going off my checklist of items, uh, as I'm trying to conjure up a fish. Right. Okay. And you've written three books. Do you, I'm assuming you do that in all of your books. I do. I do. It's, it's, uh, my stuff is like, I'm not good with story. Like there are really good authors that can tell stories and like weave anecdotes in there. I'm not, uh, like a lot of the books I read, like especially if I'm reading like books on like photography or things that I'm like into now, like I don't want the stories. I just want, I I want the meat and the potatoes about 
what I need to do to achieve this sort of end result. So that's kind of how I, I write. It's, it's, it's a very dry textbook style with all my books that you just have to take in in just very small increments. But I think that's why you're so popular. You know what I mean? I think that that people like that there's not a lot of storytelling, that it is straight to the guts. I know when I tune in to watch or read anything of yours that I am going right immediately into knowledge. And for me, that is very exciting, especially today where there's so much filler. No, well, I, I hope. Well, thank you. I mean, I, that's kind of my goal. And I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I don't, because you can, you see a lot of people today because they they kind of go with the masses. There's a lot of filler, they, and they're trying to tell cool stories. I'm not a storyteller, and even if that meant for me to have 10x more followers or 10x more book sales, that's just not how I feel comfortable presenting information. So I'm I'm very comfortable the way I do, and and this is just the way I, I think I can best present the information. And this is kind of the way I'll, I'll hopefully continue to do it for as long as I can. And I think you should. I think that you've definitely found a niche, and it, it works, and it's very appealing. So especially in fly fishing and technical fly fishing. What is book number two and book number three about? Uh, book number two was on streamer fishing. And then book number three was kind of an updated version on nymphing. And then actually in October of this year will actually be book four, which is kind of a, a modern approach to fly fishing. Basically, uh, it, it's there are some ethical things about this, but using like mono rigs, uh, mono fishing, like, but basically just using thinned out line and leader, but using this not only for nymphing, but using this for dry flies, using this for streamers, but kind of a, a mono approach to all the three popular approaches. Okay. I have questions. Um, <laughs> a mono approach. So first of all, what do you mean by ethical? Because it's not like you're hurting fish because of it. Is it because, do you mean it's not like it's you're hurting fish, but controversial because yeah. it's not purist? It, it Maybe. Yeah. Cause maybe controversial would be that cause it's just, yeah. It's for some, if you're not casting a fly line or unrolling a fly line, it's not fly fishing. But the thing is with these mono rigs and with the rods that we have, like you're literally casting sometimes. I mean, you just can't lob a dry fly with a 30 foot leader. You have to cast a 30 foot leader. With, uh, but because there's no fly line component, there are some people that will just tell you, this is, this is not fly fishing. Um, but to be honest with you, years ago, that would have hurt my feelings. Uh, I'm doing what I think is helping progress my own sport, uh, progressing my own game, improving my fish catch abilities, uh, and hopefully helping others become better anglers. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of talking about this kind of this mono, very long leader approach to all the three disciplines. Okay. My brain's on fire. So what do you mean? You've got no fly line. You've just got all your monofilament on your fly reel yeah. and you're using so, a, a standard fly rod to deliver it so a lot of the stuff that we're doing they're called the european nymphing rods so they're basically long rods very similar to tenkara but the beautiful thing about tenkara fishing like this is how i started my kids at like age four and five is that tenkara rods are soft they're limp but they can literally, because of how light that tip is you can literally cast like super light rigs like you can literally cast uh, you know, level six pound test monofilament with a 10 car rod because of the parabolics of the rod. And what I like about this is that you can not just, and they use this for nymphing, but the beautiful thing about the European nymphing rods 
is that you can also apply this to dry fly fishing. Just think about how the soft tip is and how that just gently lays out that lion leader. And basically what you're doing with a mono rig is that you're simply reducing the amount of surface area on the water. So anytime you can, what they say is thin for the wind, but anytime you can thin out the line or the mass on the water, you're simply reducing surface drag. And the less surface drag you have, the more natural and more longer your drift is going to go. So what I'm trying to do is like with my mono rigs, like you can do all, you can do like 20 pound tests, 15 pound tests. But basically a lot of the stuff I'm doing is I'm casting dry flies with like 15 pound test monofilament to maybe a very thin tippet. But my leader is literally like 35 to 40 feet. The fly line rarely sees the light of day and your drifts can just, can go on indefinitely so much longer and so much better uh, with this presentation. So it has definitely just heightened my, and it's easy when, when you're actually on the water, when you see the results of how the drift moves and you see the number of fish that you catch, like it is night and day compared to traditional fly lines. Now I'm not against traditional fly lines. I love casting fly lines to be honest with you. When I, cause I teach at Penn state university, I don't, I don't, teach them the mono rigs too much because a lot of these people, a lot of these students, when they go off and go fishing, there's very few, there's very little trout water. Most of these students are going to be living around non-trout species. So that is going to require like streamer tactics, or that's going to actually require actual fly line and actual fly casting with real fly lines. So I don't, I don't disregard that because I use that a large part, but for where I'm fishing in central PA and a lot of the streams, it doesn't require longer cast. We have smaller valleys, smaller hills. We don't get much wind compared to the West. Uh, and the flies that we're fishing are typically smaller. So because of that, and just because of the system in, that I live in, in the environment, I can pretty much do like 90, maybe 85% of my fishing with like mono rigs. Uh, and it's, has simplified my entire approach. So instead of having all these different fly lines, I mean, I have basically four trout rods and this is coming from a guy that can get as many fly rods as he wants from like my, my sponsors. I own four trout rods and my 11 foot three weight is the rod that I use probably like 90% of the time for dry flies, nymphs and streamers. Uh, so for me, maybe it's just a, a way for me to kind of simplify my life and simplify my approach to fly fishing. But because of that, it has reduced the amount of gear I carry on. I'm having a lot more fun. And to be honest with you, I'm catching more fish now than I ever have uh, with this approach. So that's, that's it. That's a very long winded answer to your question. No, it's great. So what's the farthest you can cast it? 30, 25 feet. No, with, with mono, honestly, with like monofilament um, with a dry fly, I've done things like 35, 40 feet. With, with a properly tapered mono rig and a dry fly. And we're, we're talking, we're not talking chubby Chernobyls, but we're talking like small dry flies, like sulfurs, bluing olives, but yeah, you can, a good cast. And this is where your, your cast stroke is going to be a little bit different, but you can deliver flies 35, 40 feet away with this rig at the max with no wind and small dry and flies. Just you don't have to bow and arrow. You don't need to load it by pulling it back or have a heavy rod. I mean, a, a heavy fly. No. So no, what does your no, taper no, look like? Are you going from like 30 pound mono all the way down to six pound? What does it look like? Often I'll run often like with Maxima. I like Maxima. It's, it's, it's a stiff monofilament. So it's not limp. So it's going to have good turnover, but often I may start off with like a, a 15, 20 pound section of like 20 or 15 pound test Maxima. So it's going to be long enough. So the, the, the long section of monofilament never, uh, 
basically the you, you never want any knots going through the guides when you're casting or when you're fishing. So I just make sure that the taper, the, the first section, the butt section is long enough uh, that I never have any nod connections going through the guides while I'm casting. So sometimes 15, 20 feet of like uh, 20 pound test maxima. And then, then I may have a short little taper off to six or seven X tippet, uh, something really light, uh, very thin, but it's uh Yeah. It's, it's something different, uh, but I, I've been enjoying it. It's just something new. And maybe in a couple of years, uh, I'll try something else. But that's the one thing I will say about myself is I do try to explore and, and do things different. Like when, when people like read my first book and so forth, and like a, a year or two later, they'll say, well, you said in the, you know, in the book, you know, well, I said that was like 10 years ago. Like I'm kind of moving on. I'm, I've kind of evolved a little bit. So I, I just love it. I just love tinkering. I, I'm a tinker by nature. So I'm always playing around with different things. And usually sometimes you take one or two steps back, but normally at the end of the day, you're usually one or two steps uh, ahead uh, towards your goal. Yeah. I'm thinking of all the different uses in New Zealand and the snowy mountains down in this hemisphere that it would be really handy for. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. How do you see, so say that you're standing behind a fish or downstream of a fish and you're trying to cat, cast your fly up above it, a couple feet above it. I'm thinking New Zealand right now. Are you using an indicator to see where it is? How do you know where it is? Because you won't be able to see the line. So are we talking dry flies? No, here? no, or? a nymph. So I'm, I'm looking at a fish. I'm in New Zealand. I, I go down, I go behind yeah. the fish. I cast up above it. Usually I have my colored line or my fly line land maybe a foot yeah. behind the fish so it doesn't see it. And then I can watch and see where the fly goes. What about if I can't see that fly line? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. So I've only been New Zealand a couple of times, but I fished on the South Island. Uh, but normally when I can see a fish, you know, I'm, I, I'm never looking at the fly. I'm never looking at anything other than just the, the movement and the behavior of the fish. So if I see a fish that's fish, I'm going to cast to either one side. I, I try to identify what side it may have a preference to feeding on and try to put the fly two or three inches or maybe six inches to either the right or the left and just look for that fish to move over and look for some indication of the mouth to feed. But usually when I'm, when I see fish, I'm almost like a hundred percent of my focus goes on the fish and nothing else. Okay. So you're just looking for movement, white mouth, all of that sort of um, typical trout behavior. When I spot a fish, yeah. What about indicators? Are you fishing indicators on your mono rigs? You can, and that's in. You can the the cool thing about like mono is like if you use any sort of like hard cell bobber, like like an airlock or thin bobber, it's got mass, so it's pure physics. So you've got this very thin line, so it's it's kind of like borderline spin fishing where you've got this bobber that's got mass and maybe a weighted nymph. And then all I need to do is just put the bobber and the nymph in the motion and it's going to pull. And this is why a lot of times when I'm going nymphing, I'm not trying to go down a, a weird rabbit hole, but when I'm nymphing, usually my mono rigs are going to be like level four to six pound test monofilament with, with a very thin tippet. So it's very thin, very level. So is the moment I put any weight in the motion, it's going to pull that thin line out to the target. So with this approach, like with this mono approach, and if you use an indicator, that's going to actually help your casting in some situations, as long as the indicator has got mass. Uh, and you can cast, you can cast 50, 60 feet with this rig uh, if you want. And you put the fly in the water, indicate, and then you can keep all the line leader, or in this case, all the mono off the water between you and your fly. So it's 
it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a marriage between like spin fishing and fly fishing where you're just simply reducing mass. It just makes casting more efficient. It reduces your drag and your drift just goes on so much longer. It is just, it really is a kind of a higher form of fly fishing. Yeah. You, I'm excited. I'm going to give it a try. Would, would my bamboo rods be okay for this? I feel like I need to dust off a lot of my old bamboo trout rods. The bamboo rods will be fine. Um, with this type of casting, I don't under, I can't explain the, the physics of the cast, but you're looking for more of a, a soft tip rod. If you have a rod that has a really full flex, like a full flex rod, it's definitely a lot more challenging to cast. You want something that has kind of like three quarters fairly stiff in the butt in the mid, and then something with a soft tip. That sort of design makes this sort of casting so much easier. You can do it with bamboo, but I don't think it's going to be that much easier, to be honest with you. Right, right. Hey, I have a question for you. Um, Being in PA and close to New York, you have steelhead around, so I'm sure that you fished for steelhead and salmon. I I do. I I get up there a couple times uh, to the PA side of trips from time to time. Do you think that steelhead fishing... And I need to be careful here because I don't want to offend people who are technical steelhead anglers because obviously we're out there, but do you think that steelhead fishing never really adopted the technical side of fly fishing just because of tradition, or it's just that they're not quite as prone to being as, as picky as trout? Why do you think steelhead fishing isn't usually as technical as trout fishing? I think, you know, when you talk to some of the folks in Michigan and, and West coast, and I loved, I mean, I love tradition. I, I do. I, I love, um, I, I, I'm starting to learn how to cast two hand fly rods. I think it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful art form. And, uh, I mean, that would be, that's kind of like catching the fish on the dry fly. It's like when you can catch a steelhead on a two hand rod, that is kind of like really, truly like a higher form of fly fishing in, in PA to answer your question. I think there are actually a good number now of Euro anglers that are starting to adopt this kind of mono approach to the steelhead world. Um, just with the way, the world is especially after covid even before covid like our steelhead fisheries are just so busy i mean it is sometimes wall to wall lots of traffic it just seems like the more and more people we have the deeper these fish become hunkered and just they just they're not willing to chase as much they're not willing to come up as much so you kind of need to they're not going to meet you halfway you kind of need to go to them uh, and you're seeing a lot more of the guides up there starting to apply this Euro approach. I mean, there there are guys up there now that I know that are fishing for steelhead in these smaller streams. So there's not much room, but they're using like 10 foot, 11 foot, three and four weight rods and low, clear, calm water uh, for steelhead. So they're starting to, we're starting to see a lot more of that influence in the, the PA side. I don't know how it is outside of that, but definitely here I, I see a, a good bit of it. So what's the difference then between me going out with my 12-foot center pin rod and my center pin, obviously a monofilament setup, and a jig versus going out with yeah. a fly rod and a monofilament setup? Not much. You're going to be so much more efficient with the center pin because you're just, your drifts are going to be that much longer. But this is, like I said, this is kind of like a, a marriage between like maybe center pinning and traditional fly fishing. But no, this is, yeah, like the greatest litmus test is that when you're on the water for steelhead is you just watch the center pinner because if they're not catching fish, there's no way in hell you're going to catch fish. Uh, so this is, that, that that's a great comparison. That is some sort of 
this is some form of center pinning, uh, definitely, without a doubt. Okay. With Euro, you have said Euro fishing a couple times, and I totally admit my ignorance here. What is the difference between Czech nymphing, Polish nymphing, Euro nymphing, tightline nymphing, all these nymphing styles? So I, I don't, they're, they're pretty similar, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, as they say, there's, there's no geography in, in fly fishing. Uh, but uh, to be honest with you, a lot of it was like with the, the checks and the poles where they, when they started out, the techniques were, was often casting these heavy grub flies, cast them and kind of pulling them faster in the currents to maybe like get a better sense of strike and detection. But then you have like the French and the Spanish that have these, slower moving streams far spookier fish so they're casting longer fly or longer cast lighter flies longer leaders but basically it's the same damn thing it, it, there is no there's no different it's just all you're going to do now with euro nymphing it's all of the above blended and then you're just going to adapt to the water types that you're fishing if you're fishing faster turbulent water you may use a shorter leader heavier flies and kind of pull the flies a little bit faster if you're fishing really slow moving spring creeks you're just going to be fishing a longer leader, lighter flies, and drifting your flies uh, more naturally than trying to drag them. So it's just adapting to the conditions. Uh, so that's why today we call it Euro nymphing, tight line, or whatever you want to call it. But we don't really no longer call it uh, Czech, Polish, Spanish, all that. It's kind of put under one umbrella. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Um, last technical question until I get back onto your, to your timeline. Your streamer book, I actually didn't know you'd written a streamer book, and I'm very excited right now. So does that also, okay. I'm assuming if it's written by you, it's technical. It's super technical, yeah. Tell me, I, I, I'm going to have to, I'm genuinely excited to read this book. Can you just tell me a couple highlights or some things that you think I might find interesting? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it I talk about is even like adapting the Euro approach to streamer fishing. So, you know, I know you're a, you're a swing girl, like you love, you know, the, the, the two-hand thing. So none of that is going to be new to you. But some of the things that I, I like to do is I think about streamer fishing very similar to like nymphing. Uh, nymphing and streamer fishing are both subsurface presentations. And when the fish are not coming up, you need to go down to them. And there are some water types I know that you fish that no matter how fast that sink tip is, no matter how much you mend, you're still not going to be getting down to the depth that you need, no, despite how good of a caster and despite the tools that you're using. So this is just using like a mono approach or a, a high stick nipping approach where you're using a heavy fly, long leader, keeping most line leader off the water, but you're casting upstream and you're essentially jigging for them. Uh, so that's just, that's just one approach. But the other thing too is just, just simple little tips. Like I spent, I mean, I spent two years, but I, I mean, I hired guys like Tommy Lynch. I, I remember spending, you know, I hired Tommy for four or five days and especially the Michigan guys. I mean, there's a lot of great streamer anglers in the world, uh, in the country, but I think Michigan angler, Michigan streamer, they're just maybe just one step above them because that's, they pretty much do streamer fishing more than anyone else. And you've got to be damn good at your job if you're doing it that often. So I spent weeks and weeks up in Michigan hiring these guys and just kind of picking their brains, and just watching how they go through the motions uh, and just simple little tips. Like when you're casting, like when you're using the O-ring, but all of us have problems when we're casting about the line jumping up around the butt section of your rod. But a lot of times when you watch like good casters, when they cast and they use that O-ring, they don't keep their O-ring close to their body because if they do, they're basically 
keeping the line pulling or lifting off the water closer to the butt section of the rod. So when they use a haul and they use that O-ring, they basically strip their, basically take their line hand, drift up towards their first stripping guide. And now when that line is being pulled off the water, it jumps away from the butt section of the rod and up towards the stripping guide. So using that little slide O-ring that, that like eliminates any line jumping on the butt section of your rod, like hundred percent. So just like, there's just a lot of tips like that. Uh, just, Things that I see, things that I, I have problems with, things that I see my clients having problems with, and then just trying to hopefully find a solution to make things better or resolve those issues. Okay. What about when a fish sees the fly? Do you think that a fish takes from the side, from the back, from the front? I mean, how, what do you, do you think that it matters? All, Angles? All the above. All the above. Um, I mean, the thing I, I love to do now more, I don't post uh, on it at all, basically. I, I show some pictures of like fishing from a boat, but all I do now in my free time is musky fish. I actually, I mean, I bought a boat, which I'm pretty frugal guy, but I bought a boat just for musky, not the guy, but just to fish on my own. So I've, I've seen muskies in the last couple of weeks. I've seen muskies come in from behind and eat. I've seen muskies come in and T-bone. I've seen fish come in, muskies come in from the front. You know, when people say that fish always hit or always like swallow the, uh, the fly head first, that may be true, but the point is, is that when a fish attacks, a lot of times it likes a T-bone, but it's going to attack from any angle that it thinks it's going to be able to capture that fish. So I've seen muskies come in from behind and attack, from the side and from the top. Once they have that fish in their mouth, if they have an actual bait fish, they'll reorient it so they can basically swallow the fish head first. But I've seen, I mean, I've seen everything, every species of fish pretty much attack from any different angle. Uh, but when they do get the bait fish, when they reorient, they orient so they can swallow it head first. But to answer your question, they attack from all angles. At least it has been from my experience. Right. Oh, I love this. I could pick your brain for days, but I won't because I'll just read your book and then come back if I have questions. Joe, okay. Joe, let's come back to Joe. Yeah. Side note, he has been on my list for ages and I just don't have his contact. So I don't know how he feels about podcasts, but if you could hook a sister up, it would really help. <laughs> I could, we could, we could make that happen. Thank you. Uh, tell me more about Joe. I have had dinner with Joe once years ago and I just, I just remember him being, as you said, straight to the point, but lovely and hilarious and great. Um, what did yeah, he- he's, he's a piece of work. He's, <laughs> he's 80. I mean, he, when he was, when he did that show, um, he has a, a documentary on him and he was 88. Um, so energetic. And what was funny is, He's so energetic and he looks like such a, just a sweet old man. But one of, one of our mutual friends is a, uh, one of his former wrestlers who, who, you know, he's now is like in his sixties now, but uh, he went up to Joe and he said, Joe, when the hell did you ever become so sweet? Because for years, I mean, Joe was a boxer. He was a wrestler. Like he was like, he was like intense, like super intense. And when I, when I first started hanging out with Joe, it was probably in his like late sixties, early seventies. And you want to talk about like intensity when you're fishing with this guy, like Joe was on your shoulder when you're making a mistake. Like he would just like smack in the back of the head and say, no, that's not how you do it. I mean, he was just so, in, so intense. Uh, but the thing about Joe is this, is that often with him for the longest time, it was tough love. I mean, just tough love. Like if you didn't like something, I'd, like he would call you out on it. Even if you may not were, maybe if you were not in the, the wrong, he would still call you out on it. But, when Joe did something like that, it was because he, he loved you and he wanted you to do better. So like when I wrote my first book on nymph fishing, like 
the, you should have seen like the letters, like the, I had them like look over my manuscript and the indicator section. Cause when I grew up fishing with Joe, like Joe's like, listen, George, when you become a man, you throw away your childish toys. And one of those first childish toys are indicators. <laughs> you don't use indicators. <laughs> and, and that's just Joe. And, and, and Joe is an amazing angler, but I like to fish indicators from time to time. So like he would like, he said like, no, like you can't talk about indicators. I'm like, Joe, yeah, I'm going to talk about indicators. Uh, but that's the type of relationship we had. Um, and like I said, he doesn't hold back, but he does everything just out of love. And there's just so many stories where like, like he would just invite me over to his house. And what was the coolest thing was I would go to these fly fishing shows and I would listen to Joe do his presentation. And Joe was when you listen to Joe do a program, like it is just beautiful. Like he's like this witty guy. He's got his hands are in motion. He's talking. He's, he's good at storytelling. He's giving you an antidote. And then he's kind of going into the, the techniques, but he's giving you kind of a nice little side story, then going into the techniques. Uh, but what was so cool was go, going into the show season, he would have these DVDs. And he was like one of the first guys to actually do like video, like video, like in the, in the program, rather than just the old slides. He was doing video and he would invite me over and his wife, Gloria, at that time when she was alive, like she would cook me like this, just this grilled cheese sandwich, tomato soup and a cup of tea. And I would sit down at the table with Joe and Joe would like he I would be the first person to see these new videos that he was presenting. And it was like it was like George Lucas, like presenting you with like the first Star Wars clip. I mean, it was just it was amazing. Um, and I, I just. I just saw the passion, the excitement when Joe was talking about the fly fishing. Uh, and I just, I, I saw that and I just said, that's, and, and you can see that when he would go to the shows, people would come up to him and say, thank you. Like everything you've done for me, like the information, the instructional that like, that has helped me out so much. This kind of like maybe become a better angler. And, you know, maybe I was having a tough time with, you know, my spouse who were at work and fly fishing was the thing that, but, your instruction kind of helped me become better and kind of took my mind off of that. And I, I kept seeing that so much with Joe. And I just said, you know, that's, that's like, and again, that was one of the reasons why I got into education was just seeing the, the impact that someone like Joe and, and others have on other people's lives. So I think that's just a, it's a beautiful thing. Was he kind of like a father figure for you? Yeah, he was definitely a father figure for me. And we kind of had that, that father son uh, relationship. And we still do. We still have, uh, we have a few moments of like tension, but he's, uh, yeah, he has definitely taken me under uh, kind of as a son and he has helped me out uh, in so many ways, not just uh, in education with fly fishing, but also just advice in life and uh, just, just a, a great sounding board for everything. Is your dad still around? He is. Uh, I haven't talked to him a whole lot. Uh, we had like, it was one of those weird relationships uh, with my mom and my dad where they kind of split up after like high school, they kind of kept together. They kept it together. I think maybe just for us. Then after high school, like he, he left and he moved out West and uh, I see him like, I would see him maybe like once in a while at like a fly fishing show, but we just, yeah, it's just one of those things where we just don't, we just don't talk. And you know, it's just families, families can be very complicated things. So that's just kind of the, the current status of that. Moved out West to fish. <laughs> He definitely de moved out west to fish. Yeah. So he's in Colorado. So, yep. I think somewhere on the, somewhere around Pueblo. So I think he's on the, around the Arkansas River. And, you know, I, I talked to Landon, you know, Landon Mayor and, and Landon, he'll run into Landon from time to time uh, on streams. So it's, 
so yeah, he's, I know he's out there from time to time and, you know, and I try to stay in touch, but it's been, it's been a couple of years since we've actually talked. Right. Got it. Um, you've got the fish bum all the way through your blood. I do. I do. <laughs> uh, okay. So a little bit back to, uh, Penn state university, if you don't mind, is that where you're currently employed? Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is. Okay, so Joe, so, Joe had that role though, because I don't even know what this role is. Can you enlighten me? Yeah. So Penn State's really cool. So since the '30s, we've had the fly fishing program, and since 1947, we've actually had an accredited fly fishing program. So since 1947, students could earn one and a half to two credits uh, towards their general health and wellness credits. So it's part of the kinesiology. So it's kind of a gym credit. Uh, so yeah, we've had this class since 1947, just a little after World War II. Uh, and since that time, it, George, a guy named George Harvey taught the class for years. And George is a world-known guy. He was known as the Dean of American Fly Fishing. And then Joe was his protege. And Joe took over the program, and he ran it until 1988. And since that time, it fell into some other uh, hands. And then luckily, a couple of years ago, the job became available, and, and Joe was very instrumental in helping me get into the university. But um, I'm what they call a directorship. So after Joe retired, it was all part-time instructors. But I don't know why, but they actually created a, a full-time position for me. So I run the program. I'm trying to create do outreach from the university to the local public. Uh, I do a bunch. Of, we do some other volunteering, but I teach a total of seven sections every semester. So I have uh, in seven sections. I think we have a close to like 165 students currently enrolled uh, in fly fishing. So it's 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 the most popular class from what they tell me in the kinesiology. Department. I bet <laughs> uh, it's just and so it's it, it's it's awesome. You get to and this is just it's not a major it's just an elective and what is really cool is like 80 i would say like 75 to 80% of the students that i teach are pretty much engineers or like hard science so i have like students that are just just really good very driven students i have this one young lady which is just amazing like you, you hear about why why we teach fly fishing and long story why we teach fly fishing at penn state is we're not curing cancer, but there are people that are going to be doing some amazing things in life. Uh, that is our student body. And our goal is to introduce to them, hopefully, one leisure activity that, that they can use the rest of their life. And that's what fly fishing is. And that's what we try to do. It's a very basic, very – like when you read my books and you listen to the way I teach at Penn State, it is like polar opposites. What I'm doing is just teaching – like what end of the rod to hold, what a tip it is, how to tie a couple of knots. Uh, but we have like amazing students. I have one young lady uh, that is uh, an astrophysicist. She's finishing up now, going to be going into her PhD. But like, I think she's working for like SpaceX or one of these companies, but she's like mapping out floating space matter uh, for these other companies. So when they navigate their space shuttles or whatever, that they can circumvent or basically avoid collision with these but it's and, she, and she's just talking about how they're sending signals out but it's all, all over my head but what the long story short is that these kids are just all these students here are going to be doing some really cool things in life and they're going to be playing uh a huge part of the next generation and they're going to be fitting into all these roles and with with life today with these kids the amount of depression uh just anxiety how fast things are going, they need something to kind of reset and to calm themselves. 
And what is really cool is you have these kids that have these demanding majors. And when they come in, they're all stressed out. But we go into the lecture. There's a little bit of a lecture. And then we often, often have like a field, like a, like a lab, which is usually like fly time. But like within like half hour, 40 minutes, like they're just – you can just see like they're calm. They're relaxed. And they'll tell you like every time that even though they may not continue fly fishing, uh, they may con- – but they'll still continue fly time because they, it's just therapy. Like it is just – like meditation for them. It's like the one thing they'll tell you that it's like they're two, three hours every week where they're not stressed out, where they're not thinking about this and that. So for, for us at the university, like fly fishing has a huge healing power to these students. And I think it's not, it's not a complicated cast. It's pretty easy to get an A as long as you do your work, but uh, it's just word of mouth. Uh, kids love it. The students love it. And we continue to be a very high in demand class for our students. Is that why they brought it in? In the you said you said something about 1933. I'm sorry I missed that. I know it wasn't put into place until the 40s, but what happened in the 30s? So George Harvey was a student at Penn State at that time. And the dean at that point, a guy named Dean Ralph Watts, came in to speak to the freshmen, like a freshman orientation class. And the dean said to them, like, listen, your job here at Penn State, obviously, first and foremost, is to is to get a good education. But you're, at some point in your life, you're going to need to find some other activity. And Dean's mentioned that his favorite activity happened to be fly fish or happened to be fishing. It was fishing, just fishing in general. And he said, by the way, uh, trout season is going to be opening up here and I'm going to be fishing. Uh, and basically went on to some other lecture. But George Harvey, like a day or two later, went into the dean's office, spoke to his secretary. And the secretary said, well, you know, the dean is going to be off because he's getting ready for fishing season. And, and George's like, I know why he's going to be gone because he's going to go fishing. And I, I just want to ride to the stream. So George found a way to get a ride to the stream with the dean. And they got to the stream. The dean had bait rod. And George had a fly rod. And the dean's like, listen, George, like this is like opening day, like it's cold, like you're not going to do very well with a trout. And they split. They went their ways, met back a couple hours later. The dean came back and said, you know, talk to George. And George said, how'd you do, Dean? And Dean's like, well, I got a couple fish. Like he showed them like two or three small little brook trout that were there. And the dean was like, how did you do, George? He said, oh, I got my limit. And at that time, the limit was like 25. And then the dean's like, you did what? And he said, oh, yeah. So he pulled out like this creel of like, had, like 20 fish that were like, all between like eight and 12 inches. And then George says like, that's not even the big ones. And then like in the little side pocket, he pulled out five fish that were like 18 to 22 inches. And the Dean looked at him and he just said, I have never seen a catch like that in my entire life. And he started talking to George about this and he found out a little bit about fly tying. And he talked to George and he said, George, you know, he was around the university. He's like, I've been talking to a lot of professors and instructors around the university. We would love for you to actually start teaching a class, like a basic fly fishing class, fly tying class. And George, as a student at that time, taught the class um, to the dean and all these other instructors. But the whole reason why the, the program started was because the dean at the time, selfishly and coolly, wanted to learn how to fly fish himself. Uh, and then later on, they turned it into a, a credited course, which is that's when it happened in, in 47. So that's kind of the history of the program. But it's it's really cool. I think we were like, I think we're the first school in the country to have any sort of credited fly fishing course in the nation. Oh, my gosh. How many other universities have a fly fishing class? There's a few. I think like there's Gonzaga and there's a couple other universities. But uh, by far, I don't think anyone has any other university actually has 
a fly fishing director, uh, like a full-time fly fishing director like Penn State has. But, you know, we're, we're doing studies um, with some grant money, but we're really finding some really cool things. Like it's, this is a, fly fishing is a great tool for students to use that, that they're finding later on in life. And they're starting to find the importance, even though we are an academic institution, this is an academic program, but we are giving these kids something that's going to make them far more productive, healthier, and hopefully happier um, in the long term of their life. Yeah, it makes sense. And I totally agree. They need something because there is definitely an energy out there right now with young professionals. And there's almost this battle with... Do I want to go and work a nine to five, you know, quote unquote nine to five and work for somebody else? Or do I want to just kind of live simply and live free on that note? How are you settling into having a nine to five? It's, it's been a little different, uh, but I have, I, I work to work for two wonderful women. Um, so they have been very good to me. So I can pretty much get my job at the university done like in, in three full days, long full days at the university. So that kind of leaves open. And it's great for me, uh, for the university, because they want me to continue to travel out. They want me to continue writing books, writing magazines, you know, doing shows. Uh, so they give me a lot of the flexibility. So I'm, I'm, I'm structured, highly structured for about three days for the university. And then I, I do have a good bit of time, but it's, it's tough. I mean, for 15 years, I pretty much worked for myself. So it's, it is sometimes like just a little bit difficult, uh, but I, I'm learning. I, I'm slowly becoming a grown up, I guess you could say. <laughs> I thought about doing that recently. I mean, obviously I stay busy owning my own business as well, busier than ever, but I can work at night so I can still go do stuff in the day. And I thought recently with Adelaide starting kindergarten, I thought, you know what? I'm going to try this whole working for someone else thing. It's a generational buying opportunity. Stocks are on sale. Let me make some extra income. I think I lasted two days before I realized, nope, 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 bye. <laughs> That's it. I, yes, I could be a doctor or a lawyer. I could be anything. I would like to just be the fishing girl who works for herself. Um, so I respect yeah, you. you yeah. I respect the hell out of you to be able to do it because it is so hard. Like you said, you work for yourself for all those years and then all of a sudden you need to go and work for somebody. I think the difference though is, see, you're actually making a difference in people's lives. Whereas I was thinking about just taking on a regular job and that for me just felt empty. I think if I was, if I, I think if I had to go to work and teach people and really help our, our bright future, it would be a lot more inspiring. Yeah. And I think that's, you, you would do really good. I mean, even as an adjunct, I'm sure there's universities or school, like you would be a, a wonderful adjunct instructor, something like you could find an easy niche for that. But for me, like, yeah, it's just, it doesn't matter if it's fly fishing. Teaching was something that always gave me a sense of purpose. Uh, in fact, I, I wanted to teach uh, at a university since I was like 13, uh, actually in a different subject matter than fly fishing, because I didn't, I didn't really think the fly fishing thing was going to come about uh, as it did. I, I was hoping, but it, it didn't exactly. But teaching is the one thing. It didn't matter if it was just teaching how to tie your shoes or what. But for me, it was just, it, it gave me a it still does give me a kind of a small sense of purpose. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know, our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors. Log on and shop 24 seven with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com.
Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So, keeping it real, do you get technique fatigue? Where everybody wants to pick your brain about, but what about this nymph here and and this depth here and one inch here and... Sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you could, you could definitely get burnout. I mean, it's like when people will say, how long is your tippet? How long is your cider? I mean, these are, I, these are good questions. I mean, and I'm really getting into photography. So th- this type of questions I would be asking some of these professionals would be the same thing. The irrelevance of someone asking me like, what are your three favorite flies? Or if you only had one fly to choose, what would it be? Just like I would say, if you only had one lens to pick, you know, they're talking to like someone like Chris Burkhardt, like if you had one lens, what would it be like? Like, yeah, it's like a question you hear, he probably hears a thousand times a, a week. Uh, but I definitely get some fatigue on that. But still, even though it's like sometimes like Groundhog's Day for me, I understand for this other. And, and that's I think that's the thing between good instructors and folks that are not so good is that it's learning that it's not about you. It's about them. Uh, so when you start hearing that same thing and then basically you just you kind of just have to be aware mentally or emotionally aware, like emotional intelligence. I'm trying to help this person out. He doesn't know, or she doesn't know, like I need to help him out. So as soon as I say that, like I have this, like I have this movie going on in my mind for like a couple of minutes, this dialogue. And then I can jump back and answer the question with just with sheer joy. Like, in you know, without feeling like I've answered like a thousand times before, which I have. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it is so hard for me not to sit here and pick your brain about what fly, what inch. I mean, well, not really, because the show's never been based around that, but you do come with this excitement around you because of your technical knowledge. I would never, ever be, I'm, I'm never getting excited to talk to someone about their favorite, favorite five weight rod or any of that garbage. But with you, I might get excited about it. So unfortunately, you probably do get pigeonholed sometimes, especially with podcasts and interviews, because you just know so damn much to your own detriment. Uh, no, it's I, I do. I, I geek out on stuff, and I love to talk about it. And again, you can get a little tired, but it's still it's uh it's just it's just the way my brain thinks. Uh, and unless I reprogram it another way, it's it's something I I just love talking about. So I. I it's okay to geek out. I, I kind of enjoy it most of the time. Are you afraid you're going to run out of ideas? No, uh, no, not at all. I just, the thing is, is that you just need to try different things. I mean, just always trying different things. And sometimes that means also like if you are reading about like a, a new guide or just a, like just going somewhere different, trying some, and I think, like for me, again, I'm not trying to go down this pigeonhole of just techniques, but I think one of the things that keeps my brain working and thinking, like constantly trying to seek different answers, is fishing new waters. Because I think the worst thing we do as as humans is we're creatures of habit. And then when we fish the same water day in and day out, 
our brains go on automatic pilot. It's like, okay, I know where the fish, I don't need to think about where the fish are. I know where the fish are. I've caught this fly. I've used this fish, use this fly to catch this number of fish here. So you pretty much do the same thing. But when you go to a completely different body of water uh, or a different fish species, all of a sudden, like, my, at least the way my brain is, it's always like, it's starting to like re, reboot. It's like computing, like, okay, this is a different situation. These fish aren't going to be holding the, so fishing new waters and fishing with new people all the time, it just keeps the interest. And I love it. And the important thing is, and I, I, you know, there's definitely some, there's some naysayers about this next generation of anglers, but I, I love a lot of these young folks because they're excited uh, and they're, they have new ideas, new concepts. And, I don't, I try not to hang out with as many old people, uh, my age as I, I actually try to like talk to like the kids at the local fly shop, see what they're catching fish on, what they're doing. I even talk to my students at Penn state. Like, what are you like? What do you, what are your favorite YouTube channels? What are you watching? How are you? And it's, it's, it's awesome. Like there's always something to learn. I mean, and it doesn't, I've always had that mentality. It doesn't matter like with my business or like there is always something to do beyond the, what you have. There's always a better way. And I, I'm always motivated. I don't think I'll ever, I hope I never lose that passion because it, it's not going to make it much fun if you keep doing the damn same thing all the time. Yeah, absolutely. With, with all of this innovation and all the changes that have been happening with fly fishing equipment, do you think that we've capped out or do you think that, that we are just slowly circling back to where it all started? I mean, I feel like sometimes it it goes too far and we just end up going back to simplicity. Yeah. I think some of these things, like some of the packs and some of the fly rods, when they say this next generation fly rod is this much better. I don't know. Uh, sometimes it's, I don't always buy a lot of that, but where I do see the innovation is like the fly tying materials. Uh, like the fly tying materials. I mean, they are amazing. Like, like it is just, it doesn't matter if it's streamers, especially like the streamer stuff. Like it is just, it's amazing. Like you could just like, you could look at this material and you could just think about like a thousand different ways or a thousand different ways you could tie a, a bugger now or a willy bugger with this new material. So like to like these days, this is why, you know, when I started growing up, they said, well, we had this pattern in Pennsylvania called the green weenie. Uh, it's just a bright chartreuse worm, but they had this material called honeybug, which is a, a different form of uh, chenille, kind of a soft, kind of fuzzy form of chenille. And they, when I started buying it, like you need to buy this because like the source is going to run out, you may not get it. And that was the case, like for like ten or twelve years, like you couldn't find this honeybug material, this chenille bug. And so people would like hoard, like, and then you and go in the guys like Joe Humphrey's room. Now you go down to Joe's, like he's got like, he is like his, his daughters will tell me he's like the biggest hoarder. He's got just shit everywhere. Just like bagfuls of stuff over and over again. Where today I, I buy like exactly what I need to tie maybe a couple dozen patterns because I know at least from the last couple of years, next year, there's going to be something even a little bit better than what I'm doing right now. So like the fly tying materials on side of things, I think it's almost like so as much as I hate to say it, it's like your iPhone, like your, your fly tying materials are going to be outdated in like the next six to 12 months, just because the advancements, I think that is always going, I think that is true right now. I can't say that is true with all these packs and all this technical other equipment that we use, but definitely with fly tying stuff, I, I definitely see it that way. Okay. Very interesting. Um, and I, my last real question for you, and again, it's about fishing, 
is your weakness. We, all anglers have their weakness. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I'll be totally vulnerable and I'll tell you mine. I'm not an exceptional trout angler. That's why I think you're so appealing to me because a lot of my weaknesses are your strengths. Um, What do you, is there a particular style of water or fishery that you find very challenging? Absolutely. Lakes, uh, lake fishing for trout. Um, it was, it was one of my biggest nemesis when I was competing on the adult team. And even when I was coaching the youth team, uh, I would always have to find other anglers, uh, other instructors to kind of help supplement what I could give to them. Uh, but definitely lakes. Um, uh, I just don't do it enough. And a lot of times, unless I'm seeing fish rise on the water, I, I still feel very uncomfortable, uh, fishing lakes. So for me, that, that is like my, that's my Achilles heel without a doubt. So the lack of moving water, it's, it's not so much the bugs or the fish themselves. It's the water and your presentation. It's the water, the presentation, and just, um, you know, I, I understand the idea of like drift lines, looking at hard substrate, reading the contours. But for me, like when I look at a stream, like you can have like pretty much defined spots. So when I look at a trout stream, I can see a seam. I can see a drop off. When it comes to lakes, there are anglers that are great lake anglers that can look at a flat body of water. And they can they can pretty much see what I see on a river, but on the the layout on a map floor. Uh, I just don't have that. I just I, I never developed it, and uh, I definitely struggle and just feel sometimes completely inadequate when I hit the lakes. Okay, well, that's good to know. That makes me feel a little more normal. Um, all right, well, look. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We'll start to wrap it up. There, I, I know that there are going to be people screaming right now at their radio saying, why are you not asking about this technique or that technique? In fact, I think I've even received some emails from people asking me to ask you certain questions, which I'm not going to get to. I'm sorry. What is the best way for people to tune into a lot of these techniques? Is the short answer just to read your books? Yeah, I mean, the books, um, I did a bunch of stuff on YouTube. I don't, it, it hasn't spent much time on it lately, but uh, when we were during the COVID years at Penn State, it was like my first couple of years teaching. Instead of just giving the students just some other YouTube video or just giving them some handouts. I was trying to communicate with the students because unfortunately these kids were paying for money and they weren't going to get the actual field experience that they were supposed to get because of COVID. So I went out and I filmed like a whole series of videos uh, with my GoPro and kind of talking them through uh, what they would have seen if they were with me in the class. Oh, you're a good so teacher. for like a year. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for like a year and a half, two years, like I, I covered a lot of this uh, and I, I do a little bit. I could probably make a lot more money going on the YouTube and like getting more exposure on that. But uh, right now, I just don't have the time. Uh, but I, I covered uh, so much of that. Uh, so if you're a visual learner, you could definitely go into YouTube. But if you like to read, I mean, I, I have a couple books. I write for like the Hatch Online Mag. I write for the Mutual Magazine that you and I write for with Fly Fisherman Magazine as well. So if you just Google my name or in like any sort of techniques, it's there's a lot of stuff on the on the web that I've already published. Perfect. I cannot believe you're only 44. I don't know why I thought you were so much older. Not by looks, not by looks, but by personality no. wise. Because even back then when I met you, I felt like I was such a baby. I still, I mean, I'm 40 and I still feel like I'm 25. And I swear you were 20 years older than me. Like I could have sworn, I'm 40, you're 44, we're basically the same age. I, I felt like you were 20 years older than me from, from a personality stance. No. You're an old soul. I'm, def- 
I am definitely an old soul. Um, I just, yeah, it's just kind of my, 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 my thinking, my process, but I, I, I just, I, I kind of, it just fits me and I'm not going to change, but yeah, that's kind of, I just, I like being an old soul. Well, you've got a lot of time left, so knock on wood. So what's next for you? So definitely I, I need to spend a lot more time uh, kind of revamping, but I eventually talking about YouTube, I would like to do a lot more videos like and actually do it like in a chronological or orderly fashion and just kind of update a lot of thoughts and concepts i want to do but definitely do that uh but still like there's there's so much i want to do i I mean i want to become a better trout angler i want to spend more time in the salt i want to spend more time with my wife my kids like traveling out west uh there's just i mean i i could have my, my my checklist is incredibly long but there's there's always something um I'm taking courses now to become uh, certified to actually like with a drone pilot license. So like I'm really getting into photography like that right now, not saying that I don't love fly fishing, but one of the things that gets me out into the fishing more so than anything else is actually this photography. So the aerial photography, uh, I've dropped a lot of money on just other camera equipment, but I love camera equipment. I, I just love photography. I think photography is just, for someone like myself that is not good at telling stories like through words, I think a good photographer, I think a good image, if you do it correctly, can capture that essence of what you're trying to say with just one snapshot. Uh, so it's it's like when I take a picture, it's a lot of these scenes that I, I take and a lot of the pictures I take, it's telling you what people would write in like two or three paragraphs, but I'm just giving it to you in a in a single snapshot. So for me, it's been my way of kind of talking about the creativity and kind of how I feel about looking at different scenes, about the beauty of fly fishing, the the wonders of like working with people, uh, taking pictures. Of, but that is the way I can communicate my my thoughts, uh, but not with words, but just with the visual. Uh, I'll be paying much more attention now knowing that. All right. Well, is there anything that I've left out that's glaringly obvious that you would like to add or to ask me? No, it's, this is a, I've, this is a pleasure. I mean, this is a, a great honor. Uh, you've, like I said, I've listened to your podcast a lot. I, I can't believe the number of amazing people you've had on as guests. And I'm just completely humbled and honored that you would want me to be on. So thank you for having oh, me. Thank you so much for coming on. It's an open invitation. Anytime you'd like to come on, come back. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.